Today I want to close this series out by looking at a famous story. We'll only be able to glimpse a part of the story and look at it within the context of the whole book. But it's the story of Hosea and his wife Gomer. Some of you are like, well, I knew that was doomed from the start. Hosea married a woman named Gomer, really? Um, he did, and not only did he marry a woman named Gomer, she was a prostitute. And so I want you to find in your Bibles Hosea chapter 3. Hosea chapter 3. And let's stand as we open God's Word together. When you're in the uh, prophet section, that last uh half of the Old Testament, you get um, past Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, you'll find this book of Hosea. Chapter 3 is short. tells us about the power of redeeming love, especially when we look at all that's around this chapter. Then the Lord said to me, go again and show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Now, some of you are like, little Debbie, are you talking about, I love raisin cakes, right? Well, there's... um, Raisin cakes were an aphrodisiac, and I'll stop right there in those days. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver, five bushels of barley. I said to her, you must live with me many days. Don't be promiscuous or belong to any man. I will act the same way toward you. For the Israelites must live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice, or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterwards, the people of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king. They will come with all to the Lord and to His goodness in the last days. Father, we thank You for this promise. Thank You that You have always had Your hand on Israel, and that is a picture of how Christ always has His hands in our lives and loves us regardless of our adulterous ways. Lord, I pray that You would speak to each one of us by Your Spirit, not only showing us Your great love for us, but showing us how to love others when love is tough. Lord, I pray now that we would just be sensitive to what You're saying and obedient to what You're saying. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Many of you saw the movie Courageous, and I want to introduce this sermon with a video. Actually, it's the opening scene and the movie Courageous. So if we've got that, you can go ahead and play that opening scene because it shows us the passionate pursuit of the love of a father. Now when you see a scene like that, a lot of us put ourselves in the same situation. We say we would do the same thing. And if we would love our children so much that we would pursue anything that would take them with everything that we have, How much more does our Heavenly Father love us? That He would pursue us with everything that He has to draw us back to Himself. Love moves us to do for the helpless and the hopeless what they are powerless like this baby 
that was in this video. Uh, love moves us to do for the helpless and the hopeless what they are powerless to do, especially rescuing them from what would take them from us or take them from God. That great theologian of the 1980s, Huey Lewis, said the power of love is a curious thing. Forgive me, Back to the Future was one of my favorite movies back then. But Huey Lewis was not even close. It was the Apostle Paul who said it more accurately, the power of love does this, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and it never fails. God called Hosea, this prophet in the Old Testament, to proclaim a special attribute of love that I want us to understand this morning. That's the attribute of redemption. This is the the power not just of love, but the power of redemptive love, that God would do whatever it takes to draw us back to Himself. To be redeemed literally means to, to buy back, to purchase again, to redeem. Some of you heard the story of the little boy who spent a lot of time uh, carving wood and putting together a sailboat, and he set the boat, he kind of launched it in a stream one day, and the current was a little faster than he thought it would be, and his little boat that he had carved and that he had built and he had constructed and put together, this little boat kind of sailed away from him. Out of sight, he couldn't catch up with it, and finally it washed ashore somewhere else. Somebody found the little boat, and they thought, well, that'll be something cool, that'll be something I could sell in a, in a yard sale if nothing else, and so they put it in a yard sale, and the boy saw his own boat in this yard sale, and he thought, I cannot believe that's my boat. He began to explain that that was his boat, but the person who was selling it said, okay, well, for five bucks, I'll sell it to you. And the boy thought it was worth it. After all, he made it. He pulled out the five dollars, and he bought that which he had created back. That's a picture of redemption. See, the boy went on and said to his little boat, you are now twice mine. Not only did I make you, I paid for you. I bought you back. When Jesus Christ looks at a believer, one who has put their faith and trust in Him, He can say to us, you are twice mine. And not only did I create you, not only did I make you, but I gave my very life's blood for you. I died on the cross in your place. I bought you. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, you are not your own. You were bought with the price. Therefore, honor God. We were bought with the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. Under the old covenant, still looking forward to that day that there would be a new covenant, God asked this prophet Hosea to perform a symbolic act. And let me emphasize this is a symbolic act. Sometimes when we read the actions of the prophets or actions of others in the Old Testament, it is prescriptive. In other words, they are showing us what to do. At other times, it's descriptive. It's telling us what they did as a symbolic act. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words... Uh, Young men, if you feel called into the ministry, God is not saying to you this morning, go and marry a prostitute and you'll be a great preacher. Not what he's saying. Let's just be clear on that. But he did tell Hosea, I want you to perform a a, a symbolic act. I want you to go, I want you to marry a prostitute. And then she's going to be unfaithful. And she's going to get caught back up in that horrible industry. Even in our world today, the sex slave industry is growing out of control, and we need to pray and seek to rescue young ladies from this. But he said, Hosea, she'll get back involved in that, and then you're going to go and do exactly what we read in chapter 3. You're going to buy her back. You're going to redeem her. You're going to sanctify her and cleanse her 
and, and you're going to be faithful to her, and she's going to be faithful to you again. And that's going to be a great picture. A picture of Israel. As we look at this symbolic act, as we look at the power of redeeming love this morning, the very first thing I want you to see is that this is a picture of God's relationship with Israel. The story of Hosea and Gomer is first and foremost a picture, a God-intended picture of God's relationship with Israel. Let's go back to chapter 1 and see how all of this got started. In verse 2, the Lord first spoke to Hosea. He said to him, Go and marry a promiscuous wife and have children of promiscuity. For the whole land has been promiscuous by abandoning the Lord. He says, this is a picture of Israel. This wife that you're going to marry is a picture of what Israel is in my sight. Even though they are running from me, even though they are involved in spiritual adultery, I love them. And even though they're abandoning me, I'm going to pursue them. So he went and he married Gomer, daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son, then the Lord said to him, "Name." The Lord told Hosea, "Name him Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu, and put an end to the kingdom of this house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel." She conceived and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, "Name her." And some of your translations have the Hebrew name here, Lod Ruhamah, which means, in the Holman Standard, it interprets and translates it for you. It says, no compassion. Now, there are a lot of wonderful and beautiful names for girls, and we have a lot of those uh, young ladies in our church that have beautiful names. And I like my daughter's name, Karis. It means grace. And so we, we typically look for a positive name, right? Well, can you imagine if I had named my daughter No Grace, <laughs> No Compassion. That's what this daughter's name was. Why was that? Again, it's a symbolic act. For I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. I will certainly take them away, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah. And parenthetically, we might get insert for a little while longer because Israel fell captive to the northern kingdom of Syria some century and a half before uh, Judah suffered their fall to Babylon. I will not deliver them by bow, sword, war, or by the horses and cavalry. Gomer had weaned, no compassion. <laughs> she conceived and gave birth to a son. The Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, which means very literally, not mine. Now, it's getting personal, is it not? Now, we're seeing a little bit of Gomer's behavior pronounced more clearly in that the dad would name this son, not my people, or not mine. You imagine the ridicule you would have to endure if you walked around with the name that your father gave you, simply not mine. For you are not my people, he says, and I will not be your God, speaking to Israel. Yet the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea. In other words, God's covenant promises with Israel will be fulfilled, which cannot be measured or counted. And in the place where they were told, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. A beautiful picture of restoration. And as you look at how confrontational, how serious this story is, keep in mind that that 
word redemption, there is from Genesis to Revelation in all of the Bible, what W.A. Criswell called a scarlet thread of redemption that runs through every story, that God is able to take the worst of situations and redeem it for His glory. And the Judeans, verse 11, the Israelites will be gathered together, they will appoint for themselves a single ruler and go up from the land, for the day of Jezreel will be great. In other words, there's going to be this falling away, there's going to be this spiritual adultery, there's going to be a time where God says, you're being illegitimate children to me right now, but I'm going to go after you, I'm going to redeem you, and you're going to return, and there's going to be a great future for Israel. God's picture of His covenant relationship with Israel is seen in this marriage, in this separation, in this redemption of drawing Gomer back to Hosea. Taken from the messed up life that she had experienced, given a wonderful opportunity, Gomer will still fall back into her old ways. In chapter 2, he draws on this analogy. We see in, in chapter 2 and verse 8 that, that Gomer was blind to the abundance. She didn't understand how good she had it. She does not recognize, verse 8 says, that it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine, the oil. I lavished silver and gold on her, which they used for Baal. Just as Gomer didn't understand how good she had it in her marriage with Hosea, Israel didn't understand how wonderful the blessings of God. She began to take those blessings for granted and begin to think there's got to be something better out there. I believe the enemy himself, the devil himself, had blinded Israel to how wonderful it was in that relationship when things were right between Israel and God. In, in this context, you go back in verse 7 and look at verses 9 through, 10, 9 through 13. It reveals that Israel's sin, the, those things that Israel thought was going to be better, something that's going to be more wonderful, something that, that would be new and fresh in Israel's life would be very short-lived. There is pleasure in sin, as we have already seen in this story. There is pleasure in sin for a season, but in the end, it leads to death. There would be major consequences. And after those consequences, in chapter 2, as he continues to draw the analogy from verse 14 to the rest of the chapter, Hosea is explaining that Israel will experience the redeeming love of God. When she hits rock bottom and she says, listen, we, we, we sought as a nation everything this world has to offer and it left us empty and unfulfilled and broken and in bondage that God's redeeming love begins to draw Israel back to Himself, just as Hosea would purchase and redeem Gomer. So imagine in those first five verses we read where Hosea, and you have to use your sanctified imagination here a little bit. Uh, scholars argue exactly how the story unfolded, but, but you can uh, imagine, if you will, that here is Gomer. She has become promiscuous again. She has left her husband. She has gotten caught back up in this sex slave trade, and she feels beat up and worthless and used and abused and unworthy to stand before a righteous man of God like Hosea. And Hosea spots her there on the slave auction block, ready to be auctioned off again. And he says, I've got a bid that nobody can match. And he buys her back, and he begins to cleanse her and he begins to wash her and present her clean unto himself. And he says, listen, I forgive you. I love you. 
This thing is going to be restored, and we're going to be a picture for all of Israel of God's redemptive love. Can you imagine the brokenness that Gomer must have felt? The sermons that will follow in Hosea chapter 4, verses, uh, through, all the way through chapter 14, pointed out that Israel's rebellion, what Israel was chasing after, that caused Israel to leave her beloved Yahweh God, was corrupt leaders. We don't have any of those in our nation today, do we? Idolatry. Pastor, I'm not guilty of idolatry. You won't find any little images on my mantelpiece that we bow down. What do you put before your relationship with Christ? It can be material things. It can be emotional things. It can be other relationships. Idolatry. All kinds of sexual perversions. And for those who were faithful to the church, (laughs) for those who were faithful to the temple, it was ritualism. What was Israel being confronted for doing again and again, going through the motions. They were showing up for church. They were in a life group. They were serving on a ministry team. They were going through the motions and everything looked A-OK, but their hearts were far from God. So in so many of these ways, we see in Hosea and Gomer a picture of God's relationship with Israel. Chapter 10, we see, that Israel sowing to the wind led to the reaping of the whirlwind. Sometimes we feel like we can kind of sow a little bit to the flesh, but God says if you're sowing to the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. God said to Israel, though I'm not finished with you, this morning I want you to know something from this story. God is not finished with you either. God wasn't finished with Israel, and to this day, God's covenant promises are still being fulfilled to Israel and will be fulfilled to Israel, and God is not finished with you, and God is not finished with me. No matter how far you feel from Him, God is not finished. And so we see a a beautiful picture here. Secondly, though, I want you to take this, and and we want to interpret in light of the New Testament and see this truth, that is that Hosea and his relationship with Gomer is a prophecy of glorious redemption in the church. A prophecy of glorious redemption in, in, in the church. You might be asking, well, how do you know that? Is it, because, is it because Hosea is a prophet, so you just automatically assume that there's something uh, messianic here, something Christological in here? Not just because he's a prophet, but I want you to see how he kind of begins to wrap things up. In chapter 13, in verse 14, Hosea prophesies the words of the Lord, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. Death, where are your barbs? Hell or Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. You know the rest of the story. How does the Apostle Paul interpret that and use that and apply that verse under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's found again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection chapter, that that is written to remind us, to convince us that Jesus Christ is not dead, He is alive and well, and that our redemption is available and sure. And so Paul takes those Scriptures and he expounds on them with these words in 1 Corinthians 15, 54-57. 
Now when this corruptible is clothed in incorruptibility and this mortal is clothed in immortality, then the saying that is written, speaking of Hosea's words, will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is... This is the Greek equivalent there to the the Sheol, the, the hell that we would experience with separation from God. Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hosea's prophecy was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ that there is coming a day that the very Lamb of God would show us that God runs to us to redeem us. God took on flesh when we knew that sin separated us from Him. And sin had to be paid with death, hell, and total separation from God. Christ took our death. He took our hell when everything was poured out on Him on the cross. He got victory over that. And thanks be to God who gives us the victory now through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can now have that restored relationship with the Father through the Son, only through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ who died in our place. How did Christ accomplish all of that? Here's another beautiful picture in the New Testament. Revelation chapter 19. We see that great wedding feast, that that great coming together of the bride of Christ and her Lord. In chapter uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has prepared herself. She was permitted to wear fine linen, bright and pure, where the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, These words of God are true. Because of the sanctifying work of the Lord Jesus Christ in my life, in your life, there's going to be that pure consummation, that wedding day, that reunion with Christ that we will experience forever and ever. There's a a prophecy all the way back in Hosea, and we can trace that scarlet thread that I mentioned all the way back to Genesis where God is saying, here is a picture of glorious redemption. When we look at the lives of Hosea and Gomer, that she felt worthless, but she was made worthy because of the price that her husband was willing to pay. Not because who she was, she was not worthy because of what she'd done. She was not worthy because she even had the power to say, I'm going to turn over and you leave. She was made worthy because of the price her husband paid. This morning, you may feel like you're far from God. You may not feel like you're worth too much. I'm not worth much to my family and not worth much to my friends and not worth much to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, your worth is not based on what you do. It's based on what Jesus did. And when He died on the cross, He, through His blood, made you worthy. He paid the price. You're worthy not because of who you are, but because of the price He paid. Colossians. Chapter 1, I know you're turning the pages a lot. These are some of those powerful and profound verses that not only build our theology of redemption, tell us every day how much we're loved. In the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that he might come to have first place in everything. Well, how did Christ deserve the right to become first place in everything? 
God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile everything to Himself by making peace through the blood of His cross, whether things on the earth or things in heaven. And you, that's me and you folks, you were once alienated and hostile in mind because of your evil actions. But now He has reconciled you by His physical body through His death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before Him. Christ did it all. He did it all for us to present us faultless. Jesus paid the price once and for all. There was a gardener in England who heard a boy drowning. And he went and he saved the life of this boy who had gotten in water that was over his head. This gardener pulled him out of a stream. He worked for this family and pulled this boy out of a stream and he presented him to his wealthy parents. And the parents said, listen, you saved our boy's life. What can we do for you? This man also had a son, and he said, I'll tell you what, my son wants to go to medical school, and he can't afford it. If you could help him go to medical school, I'd appreciate it. So they paid for this man's son to go to medical school. Later on, this boy who was drowning became very famous in England. His name was Winston Churchill. Churchill, later in life, developed a bad case of pneumonia that nearly took his life, but Dr. Alexander Fleming, the one who discovered and developed penicillin, treated him and likely saved his life. Dr. Fleming was the little boy who Churchill's dad had saved, or, 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 or whose dad had saved Churchill from drowning. Then Churchill makes this statement, rarely has one owed his life twice to the same person. Why do we run to God? Because He first ran to us. He created us, we owe Him our life. He died for us. We owe Him our life twice. We owe Him everything that we are, all that we have. Our diseases were sin and rebellion, but the redeeming power of love Amen. Romans 5.8 says it this way, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say, clean up your act and I'll give my life for you. He says, while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how He demonstrated redeeming love. So in, in Hosea and Gomer's marriage, their separation, their coming back together, we see a picture of God's relationship with Israel, but we see a prophecy of glorious redemption in Christ. And finally, This is where we need to learn to apply this ourselves. This is where we need to embrace the attributes of Christ and God in our lives. It's a paradigm for gracious restoration in life. God demonstrates this for us so that we might embrace a paradigm. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11 says, All these things happened, speaking of the things that happened in the Old Testament, all these things happened as an example and an admonition to us so that we could learn a few things about the character and nature of God and how to live our lives. So that our love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So that we might look at how Hosea loved Gomer to be a picture of God's covenant love for Israel and say to ourselves, I want to love people like that. 
I want to love people like that. Even if in my heart and in my mind I have in my own selfish standards concluded they're not worthy of that kind of love, we come to a place where we say, I want to love people like that. In this journey that we've gone through of these famous passages of, of reconnecting, one verse comes up again and again and again, and it's Ephesians 4.32. It says, Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. What is it saying there? It's saying, as God loved Israel, as Hosea loved Gomer, you're to love others the same way. This is a paradigm for your life. Not making them earn your love or be worthy of your love. You love them not because of who they are, but sometimes in spite of who they are. Forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Sometimes that's very difficult. Galatians 6 says, Brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a one with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Everything that Christ pictured and His love for the church should be pictured in our life and our love for our spouses and our children and our love for others. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, we need to be reminded of that sometime. We're not who we are because we're better than somebody else. We're who we are by the grace of God and what Christ has done for us. And because He loved us, we ought also to love one another. If anyone considers himself something when he is not, he is deceiving himself. But each person should examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in himself alone and not in respect to someone else so that we stop comparing ourselves to others, say thank God for His grace, God is doing a saving, changing work in my life. How dare I withhold that kind of unconditional love from anyone else? Let them experience my wrath. Now, should there be a time where we let people experience the consequences of their sin and their choices? Absolutely. That's what God did for Israel. And God stood at a distance. And He says, you're not acting like my children right now. But He let them go so far and He began to draw them back to Himself when they understood their need for Him again. He pursues them with a tenacity and we're to pursue people that we love with a tenacity in our prayer life. Sometimes a tenacity in enlisting others to pray with us and help us reach out to them. Turning the other cheek and showing love when it hurts. We love people like that. People God places in our lives. We realize God has already given us the paradigm. His covenant relationship with Israel. Jesus Christ and the church. And the way a husband should love his wife. The way a family should love one another. The way brothers and sisters in Christ should love one another for the glory of God. Even when love is tough. I heard this story when I was a teenager. Just one of those stories that kind of stayed with me. It was at an FCA meeting. I heard this story. And some of these kids have probably heard it too. But the story was that there were these two friends that were really tight, good friends, looked out for one another, and they joined the military together. They served together during one of the, the wars, World War II or the Vietnam War. But the, these two, two friends were serving together and had always been there for one another. When one of them is shot on the battlefield, left there to die, all of the troops were retreating from the scene, 
his friend turned and ran in the midst of gunfire to his friend. Picked him up, risking his own life, brought him back to safety. The other soldiers begin to say, man, that was stupid risking your own life like that. And by the way, he's dead. You risk your life and he's dead. This friend spoke up and he said, but he wasn't dead when I got there. I said, well, why does it matter he's dead now? I said, well, what matters is this. When I got there, he said in his last breath, I knew you would come. I knew you would come. God has promised us in His Word that He would never leave us nor forsake us. If we're running from Him, He'll unleash the hounds of heaven after us. And you may say, I'll get to a certain point where I can escape it. Listen, if you're a child of God, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption and you cannot escape it. He will not let you go. If He has let you go to where you can run from Him and not feel the conviction of sin, that means you're not sealed and indwelled by the Spirit of God and you need to come to Christ by faith for salvation first and foremost. But if you're a child of God, no matter how hard you try to run from Him, He's going to pursue you. Christ pursued us on the cross and God calls us to a life of loving and pursuing others. That same paradigm. Would you bow your heads with me?